Hello and welcome to another episode here at The Latest with Law Simplified. I am your podcast host, Barry Nally, and today we're joined by another awesome guest. Our guest is a highly respected solicitor's advocate specialising in criminal defence, business crime and regulatory law. He's also a partner at Forbes Solicitors, a leading national law firm in the UK and heads up the high profile and private crime division within the firm. He has experience of representing thousands of clients, including celebrities and high net worth individuals. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Mr. Craig McKenzie. Hello and welcome to Law Simplified, Craig. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yes, I am very well, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to to be on the show. Very excited to have you. How's the day going? Yeah, good, thanks. Busy, but uh, yeah, it's a good day. Looking forward to the bank holiday weekend. Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) Very much so. Same here. Um, Thankfully, we've got another one the week after, so I think we've got a really nice two weeks to look forward to. (laughs) So I think we should crack on, Craig, uh, and get to know you a little more. Um, so I looked into you, Craig, uh, and I know that you were training to become a forensic scientist. Yeah. So what made you then want to become a lawyer? Well, I, I was never really, law was never on the agenda when I was, was a kid. I was more interested in science and maths rather than the traditional subjects that would lead you to the law. Um, and so I did a degree in forensic and biomolecular science, and although I enjoyed it um, and I found it very interesting, I think it became very clear to me, if I'm being honest with myself, that I was never going to win the Nobel Prize. There were people on that course whose brains were just wired differently, that they were much better at the academic side of, of science than than perhaps I was. And the eureka kind of moment was when, as part of the degree, we had to do a module in the law of evidence um, because ultimately they're training you up to give evidence in court. And so you need to know what's admissible, what's not admissible. Um, And I I just found that the law... um, very interesting, but very simple. I like the idea of you having a set of facts, you applying the legislation, the case law, coming to an opinion. Uh, because up until then, I'd been studying equations and maths and um, studying science books. It's like trying to learn multiple different languages um, all in one. And I just felt that I got it collect and I went to Liverpool Crown Court to watch a trial and uh, I just thought when I saw the advocates in court that that's that's what I want to do I, I don't want to uh, be stuck in a, a lab for the rest of my life I, I, I'd like to, to have a go at that so that's when I um, made the decision I'd like to do that I spoke to the the lecturer he was a um, he was a barrister who lectured part-time and he told me about um, this, what 
was called the CPE at the time. And that's the conversion course. I think it's called something different now, but you basically cram a law degree into a year and you can convert and go on to be either a solicitor or a barrister. So that's the route I took. I did the CPE um, and then I was lucky enough to secure a training contract and um, the rest is history. Amazing. It's interesting, actually, Craig, we've had a number of guests that have appeared on our podcast and had said the same, that they were pursuing a different career, but then actually went on to convert into law. And it's a great thing that anybody, even at this stage now in the current time, is able to do um, a, a conversion course and get into law. I think that's a, the beauty of law, really. And I assume that because you do crime, that a lot of it, you do sometimes deal with, you know, a lot of reports and sort of, you know, sort of same similar things that you would do if you were to have gone on to become a forensic scientist. I think you're still, you're not missing that much of science, are you? There's lots of expert evidence and things that you have to consider. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a a good um, fact, really, because a lot of the sort of scientific things that allow doing the degree, I, I can apply it now um, in my career as a solicitor because I deal with expert witnesses, I, I deal with all these issues, but just from a different um, angle. So it does come in handy from mm-hmm. time to time. Absolutely. And can you give us a, a brief snapshot? I know you've touched on a little there, um, the conversion from you know a science degree to, to law, but could you give our audiences a brief snapshot into your journey before then and also after you'd actually completed your training contract? Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I suppose I don't come from a, what you, some people might say is a traditional uh, legal background if, if such a thing exists anymore. Um, I didn't go to a private school or benefit from a, an Oxbridge education. I, I come from Glasgow originally, um, a place in the east end of Glasgow. And yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to get into university where I studied science. I went into law probably rather naively at the time. I mean, people did tell me it was competitive and there was all these rumours that for every training contract place or every pupillage, there's three, four, five hundred people applying. Um, But for some reason, whether it's naivety or just the way, I think that didn't put me off. Um, And I was fortunate enough to be given probably my first big break in the law, when I got my training contract, and it was with a chap called Kevin Commons. Now he was he was an old school criminal um, lawyer, sharp as a tack, formidable advocate, um, but quite an intimidating sort of character. You would want to come across him in court. <laughs> he'd um, he built a very successful practice in the north. Um, of England and so he gave me a training contract and sort of took me under his wing and I I did my training with him Um, I was probably one or two years qualified Um, and unfortunately he got um, he got killed he got shot and murdered Um, oh my god I don't know if you remember the Cumbria shootings Derek Bird 
Oh, yes. Uh, and um, so he was the solicitor that got killed. And it was um, it was at, not so long after that that I, I moved to Forbes uh, solicitors and uh, joined the team here. And uh, I started as a, as a solicitor and... I've taken quite a traditional route. I've gone solicitor, associate, senior associate, and now um, I'm fortunate enough to be a partner um, at, at the firm. And so in terms of a snapshot, that's really, um, you know what I mean, where I've come from and where I, I am now. Um, I mean, at Forbes, I tend to, well, I'm, I'm part of the criminal team, but... I tend to deal with more of the, the private paid side, a lot of the regulatory cases, some of the extremely um, serious cases. Um, my team looks after that side um, of the work. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's a snapshot of <laughs> uh, where I'm up to. Thank you so much for that. How inspirational, <laughs> not forgetting how hard you must have worked throughout that trajectory. Um, so you mentioned that you are now a partner at Forbes Solicitors. Many congratulations, Craig. We saw you. that you became a partner sort of almost a year ago. Um, a huge moment for you and your family? Yeah, I suppose it was. It's, it's one of those milestones, uh, I think, in your career. It's something you sort of aspire to when you go into the law. Uh, I mean... For, for barristers, it's probably getting silk or becoming king's counsel, whereas for a solicitor, it's making partner. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is um, a milestone and it's something I've wanted and aspired to for, for, for a long time. Um, but it's something I'm enjoying and, um, yeah, onwards and upwards. How incredible. Many congratulations again from, from us here at Law Simplified. Now... You've already touched on this. You do head up the high profile and private crime division in Forbes Solicitors. Mm. And you've touched on some of the cases, for instance, the regulatory work that you do where you represent clients. Um, can you give us a, a bit of a more insight into the other types of cases? Because you do deal with and have actually represented some high profile people. We're going to touch on some cases later on. But mm. could you give us an insight into the types of work that you're doing? In that respect, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've, I've represented literally thousands of uh, people. And it's correct, I have. I've represented celebrities, footballers, politicians, other high-profile uh, figures, and I suppose that, in some respects, is, is a blessing, but other respects is, is a curse because whilst you get to know all the very um, gory details and uh, you get an insight into these people's life, the curse is that you can't really talk very much um, uh, about it because with these type of clients confidentiality is sacrosanct um, you have to be discreet, you have to protect your client's privacy um, and there's always additional complex factors at play when you're dealing with high profile cases because you're not just given legal advice or legal representation quite often you are protecting their reputation their livelihood um, and so I, I I can't really name drop and if, if I 
if I was to name drop, if I was able to, I probably wouldn't because it's not really the, the classy thing to do. But at the moment, I represent um, someone very well known in the sporting world. I've recently represented a well-known politician. I have just finished representing the director of a top-flight Premiership football club. Wow. Uh, and so, so yeah, um, I, I am fortunate to, to to represent these type of clients. I mean, I can probably tell you a bit about the first high-profile case that I ever dealt with because it's so long ago now. Um, I, I was in my 20s, relatively newly qualified and a client instructed me and he was a he was a premiership footballer um, and it was an extremely high profile case all over the, the media it's pre-social media so you're talking newspapers and, and tv um, but there were some big names um, being banded about it was in a, a city of london police investigation into corruption within football when you had names like Harry Redknapp, uh, Willie Mackay um, and my, my client it was a two year investigation I was up and down to London numerous times and fortunately he avoided any charges um, but that, that was the first real high profile case and I got to meet a lot of solicitors that were, that were sort of operating at that level I uh, got to learn a lot. Um, but it's, for, for me, that's job. It's not just about the sort of high-profile cases. Some of the most interesting cases that I've had have just been ordering people. Um, I, I spent many, many years as a trial advocate um, attending magistrates' courts day in, day out, trying the sort of low-level offences you assaults, thefts, um, public order offences. And it's probably doing that that I learned most about the law and the human condition generally, um, as opposed to the bigger high-profile cases. Um, and, and, I mean, it's that's where you learn how to examine a witness, you learn how to deliver a a speech and if you can persuade seasoned magistrates and a district judge, juries are sometimes a, a breeze. So it's that's where, for me, um, I cut my teeth. It's the, the sort of day in, day out, lower level stuff over a number of years, which has led me to where I am today. I tend to deal with more serious cases today. Um, my case law at the moment, I've got terrorism, murder, frauds, various regulatory health and safety um, uh, offences, so it's quite varied. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I can give examples of cases, um, some interesting cases that I've, I've been involved in. Um, some of, I suppose some of my favourite cases would be... Um, ones that, that stick out with me. I mean, there's one in particular I could tell you a bit about. Mm. Uh, uh, do, do children listen to you, uh, show at all? <laughs> um, we have a variance in the audience. We don't have specifically children. So we're, we're good to go. Well, well, one of my favourite cases, 
it was a long time ago. It was in the magistrate's court. It was a trial. The offence was exposure. Okay. Now, at the time, um, the team I was in, I was basically in the, 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 the trial advocate. We, we had a number of trial advocates who would go out and do all the sort of lower level trials. And it was um, a case of you get into the office early, you divide the files up between your colleagues. And on this particular day, I got handed an exposure. Probably not the, um, it wouldn't have been my first choice of case. I'd rather have an assault or something like that. But I took the file, had a read, I went over to court. And as I walk into the, um, the court waiting room, it's full of people. But there's one guy in particular who he stands out like a sore thumb. Um, if you were to uh, type into Google, what does a sex offender look like? His picture would probably come up. And right. one to, uh, I don't buy into stereotypes or judging people by um, the, the way they look, but unfortunately, a large proportion of the public do. And in my head, I'm, I'm thinking, please don't let that be, Mr. Smith said, please don't let that be. So I, I book in with the ushers. Uh, I know very well because I'm there day in, day out. And I said, have Mr. Smith. Uh, we've got a trial. Has he arrived yet? And the, the usher um, said, yes, he's here. So where is he? Um, and the reply was, he's the guy sat in the corner who looks like a sex offender. So it wasn't a, a good start. Um, it was um, always going to be a difficult case, but it was one of those cases that it just kept getting stranger and stranger. I, I went for a consultation um, with, with the chap and he was adamant that um, he hadn't done it. He was not guilty. He was having his trial. Um, and of course, as his lawyer, you are bound by your instructions. Um, he was aware that the evidence against it was strong, but you take your instructions and you do the best that you can. Um, and so I got myself into the, the, the mindset. We go into court and it was a case where the, the complainant was his next door neighbour and she was a very much an upstanding member of the community. She was a wife, mother, she was an NHS nurse. But the sort of person that was going to be believed, she had no reason to um, lie, she was telling the truth. So having discussed this with, with the client, we, we decided that it's probably not a good idea for us to go in and start saying that she's lying about it or she's making it up. The case theory was going to have to be she's mistaken to, 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 to some extent that she just got it wrong. Um, and so we, we went in to start the trial. Briefly, the facts alleged were that he had been in his back garden he had been exposing himself by placing his penis through a hole in the garden fence. Right. And his poor neighbour um, was just in the kitchen washing up the dishes when she looks out and she sees this penis going through the fence. 
Um, there was some police evidence. Uh, an officer, um, let's call him Inspector Colombo, had attended the scene and he'd inspected the fence and he'd noted that. I say it's getting straight, it gets stranger and stranger in this case. That okay. actually a hole had been cut at just the right height, at sort of waist height. But not only that, it had been sanded down and it had been smoothed out. And there was a, another hole that sort which the, the officer suspected was a peephole. Um, and and so this this case was turned and not only had he exposed himself, it was suggested that this was premeditated, it was planned, that he'd gone to a lot of effort to make sure that he didn't get any splinters in places that he wouldn't want splinters. So um, it was one of those cases where you had to exercise a lot of self-discipline not to um, laugh or for the proceedings to descend into a circus. But as, as we sat down, uh, my, my opponent passes me um, an application and it, it goes back to us because the prosecution now are wanting to introduce evidence of bad character. So they're saying that this chap has previous uh, for doing something similar in it. And so we start the bad character application and the previous incident, he'd received a police caution, I think about two years before this event and the prosecutor reads out the facts and the facts are that he was in his back garden he was um, masturbating whilst wearing a lime green dress now (laughs) the prosecution was saying well it's strikingly similar I had to make some kind of argument against it going in because uh, as if we didn't have enough to contend with we, we now had this and all I could come up with at the time was, well, it's so prejudicial. If it goes in, he's not going to receive a fair trial. Um, and then I suggested, well, it wasn't exactly the same. Uh, I think I said something along the lines of, you wash it. Well, this was a single incident some time ago, and there's absolutely no suggestion in the instant case that he was wearing a lime green dress or, in fact, any other item of, of women's clothing. Mm-hmm. And I could see in my peripheral vision the my opponent's shoulders moving up and down because um, they, they were just holding in, they were sort of laughing to themselves. One of the wingers was um, choking on the, the, the water. The magistrates had to retire to, to compose themselves. And and so the, the, the trial continued. I think they allowed the application as the role was going to. and. We started. Well, I started cross-examining the the complainant, and I didn't have much to go on, as, as you can imagine. And so, I'm taking her through the evidence. I'm saying, oh, so you were some distance away. It's through a window. Do you wear glasses? When's the last time you got your eyes checked? Um, and then I was suggesting alternatives. Well, it could have been a finger. It could have been hmm. some sort of animal, and. She just turned around and said to me, well, Mr. McKenzie, I'm a nurse, I'm a wife, I've got two um, teenage boys. I know what a penis like looks like. And again, the magistrates are all red-faced, try, trying to, to hold in um, the, the, the laughter. One of the magistrates, again, they retired to compose themselves. Um, but... It, 
But what really did it for her was what she told us right after, saying, I know what a penis looks like. And uh, and then says, I know it was him because I saw his hand grasping the top of the fence while he was doing it. And so it just descended into, um, it, it was one of the trials that it just, People were just dying to, to, to laugh. It, it descended into somewhat by the end of it. Yeah. Of course, I lost that case right. spectacularly. Yeah. Um, but he did get an extremely lenient sentence. He didn't go to prison. He, he got some order with the probation service. So he later admitted to that he'd done it. He wanted to help. And I, I never saw the chap again. So presumably he got the help that he needed to and, and I think that's one of my favourite trials that, that, that I've done not because it was a high profile case but just because it was sort of fun and it's it's, it's these sort of things you come across on a daily basis when you're in crime that mm-hmm. makes the job um, worthwhile really um, so yeah I hope there's, there's no children that listen to your yep. show that's yep. one of my yeah <laughs> Cases. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, Craig. Quite a bizarre case, really. <laughs> it was very bizarre, very bizarre, which is why it's one of my favourites. Yeah. Uh, talk about losing spectacular. It was a case that just went from bad to worse and uh, <laughs> couldn't get any stranger. How do you represent somebody that is guilty? Um, I, I don't look at it in that way. Um, I mean, I've never represented someone that told me they were guilty Mm. on the basis that I'm going to go before the court and tell the court that they're not guilty. It's just not how it works. Um, People come to me and they say they're not guilty and it's not for me to judge whether they're guilty or not. I act on instructions and... I believe everyone's entitled to a defence and representation, and I don't see my I see myself as as a minor cog in a much larger machine. If I don't defend it to the best of my ability, um, and uh, you, you know, I mean, how do, how does anyone know that the outcome is fair and, and just? If I do my job, the prosecutor does their job. Um, it's Justice is in the hands of the the jury or the judge, the magistrates. Um, but it, I, I see myself as being part of a much bigger machine. Thank you so much for answering that, uh, Craig. Because it's often these types of questions that you see ask lawyers. Um, so I wanted to put that to you, Craig. Thank you for that. Now you've spent many, many, many years doing crime. Uh, and practicing as a lawyer and as you touched um, upon just now actually that not only are you a solicitor but you're a solicitor advocate so you go out and fight trials yourself looking back now many many years later do you ever think or have a moment where you think and perhaps I should have become a scientist or or do you now looking back think actually I made the right decision I suppose I've had a few wobbles over the years, especially when you get phone calls at three o'clock in the morning to attend mm. stations in the middle of nowhere when it's raining and it's cold. And, um, so I suppose in those sort of moments, I have had a few wobbles thinking, 
I wish I'd done something else with my life. But the reality is, I know that um, even if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would probably still be involved in the law and doing what I do in one way or another. I might not be doing as much of it, and I might pick and choose what cases I, <laughs> I think on, but I, I, it's still sitting in a lab day in, day out, or even sat at a desk in front of a computer screen day in, day out is not something that I would want to spend the rest of my life doing. And fortunately, um, doing what I do, I get out and about, I meet different people, I go to court, I go to police stations. Um, I don't think I could realistically do anything else and be happy. Very fulfilling career, actually, is law. Um, yeah. Especially a great result. You just feel amazing, don't you, Craig? Top of the world. <laughs> um, now, you've mentioned just a bit ago that you, you do do very serious cases, the likes of terrorism, murder, and, uh, and things like that. Um, can you tell our audiences, I know you can't touch on any of the high-profile cases, but we do want to ask you this, Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go into prison cells to speak to your client, especially if somebody's charged with murder, do you ever have moments where you think, okay, this is quite sort of, you know, intimidating or not so nice to be in the same room as somebody who perhaps could be very dangerous? Not really, I suppose is the answer. I- <laughs> Um, what I find is that I'm yet to come across, I mean, you see in the media people being portrayed as evil and um, complete psychopaths, that, but I'm yet to come across someone that I would put in, in that category. Most people, even if they've done horrendous things, are pretty glad to see me. Mm. Um, um, I'm the only one really that's interested in helping them. Um, I have had run-ins with various clients that, with mental health difficulties, I've had a, a, well, a former police officer um, try to swing a punch at me. I've had a table thrown at me. I've had um, I've had various various run-ins, but nothing fortunately that. I've got heart, but it's, it, you probably become desensitised to it over a period of time. I think I was probably a bit more reluctant when I was young, 20-something-year-old, whereas now it's, um, I think, most tricky situations and difficult clients you can deal with just by listening to what they've got to say. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to descend into them going into a rage and, attacking you in any way so I, I don't it's not something I really worry about well that sounds like um well you just mentioned about tables being thrown and a punch being thrown to, uh, at you sounds like something from the movies if I'm honest Craig <laughs> um but those are the joys of being a a, a criminal well, yeah my very first police station interview that I went to and I was observing someone else because I was still training the chap threw a hot cup of hot chocolate all over a police officer. So it was, um, yeah, so you do come across things like that, but uh, I'm quite, people say I'm quite laid back, um, so I don't, I don't tend to worry too much. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us, Craig. Mm-hmm. Um, so earlier this month, you'll have um, no doubt um, 
no, the Thomas Cashman. This is a a case that made headline news. He was sentenced to 42 years for the heart-wrenching murder of a, a young, sweet girl, Oliver, Olivia Pratt Cobell. Um, can you tell our audiences about that case? Um, now, we know that currently it, it's it's going to Court of Appeal. Um, mm. So uh, very grateful if you would give us a bit of a snapshot into that case for us, please. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't my case. Uh, as such, I did follow it, um, and I have been on things talking about that case previously. Um, it was an awful case. He, he was convicted of murder, attempted murder, and various firearms offences. Now, the, the the only sentence for murder is a life imprisonment, but as you will know, um, the judge has to set a tariff, and the tariff set in his case was 42 years, which is it's quite a high tariff, one of the highest I've seen um, recently. I am aware that I think he has lodged an appeal. I'm not sure if he's lodged the appeal or whether it was uh, someone else that's lodged the appeal um, for it being too lenient, but I know an appeal has gone in. My, my view um, in relation to the sentence is that I mean, legally at least, uh, I think the sentence reflects the severity of the, the crimes committed. I don't think it will be changed on appeal. And I say legally, it reflects the seriousness because, of course, no sentence or punishment within the court's power to impose could ever seek to in some way put a value on the loss of, of human life. The courts are constrained by the statutory framework under which they operate. They have to follow guidelines, um, which are all set by by Parliament. I mean, the starting point for any murder when setting a tariff that involves a firearm is 30 years. But the judge in this case, he has had to bear in mind that this, from what I've read, appears to have been a pre-planned premeditated execution. Um, he took two guns with him. There was an innocent young child murdered in her own home, and she may not have been the intended victim, but that doesn't really offer any mitigation because he went there to kill someone. Um, there was other offences. There's attempted murder, there's a wounding, there's firearms offences. So I think the judge taken into account totality, it has got the, he's got the sentence really um, right. So I can't imagine the, there being any interference with it. But that, that's my view from, from what I've read in terms of the sentence. And I, I know there was a lot of talk about the fact that Cashman himself didn't appear for that sentence in hearing and there's been calls for politicians to try and change the law in some way to ensure that people appear to be, be sentenced in the future. Whether they'll get anywhere uh, with, with that it is questionable. Because mm. I think it's the situation where he's just refused to, to go into court. Um, in fact, I've heard that one of the reasons his advocate gave was that when he was convicted, 
the prosecution, the CPS and the police and were singing We Are the Champions, which seems very strange to me. I can't imagine that um, ever happening in a Crown Court, but that was the reason he gave. Um, but it's not uncommon for defendants to refuse to go into court, and there's very little in reality that anyone can do about that because the alternative would be for the judge to defer the matter to the president. The president would have to conduct risk assessments. They can use force, but how distressing would it be for someone to be dragged into court um, shouting at the family of the victim? Um, you know, I mean, they're not going to, in those circumstances, I would imagine, be very respectful and, and just take it on the chin. So. It's a, it's a difficult um, issue, and I don't see um, really anything that we would adequately deal with, you know what I mean, forcing people to, to, to face the, the sentence in court if they, should, if they decide not to. Mm. Thank you so much for that, Craig. Um, we, we've sort of followed the case a little as well. I think the, the uh, situation now, as we understand it, that there are calls for him to uh, receive a whole life order. Um, are you able to tell our audiences just very briefly what a whole life order is? Yeah, I mean, a whole life order um, basically means that he would never get out. Um, the, the, I mean, some people get mixed up. They, they, they think that for, they see 42 years and they think that that's the sentence. It's not. It's a life sentence. It just means that after 42 years, he can apply for parole. There's no guarantee that he will ever get parole. Um, he will have to convince the parole board that he's not a danger. Now, a whole life sentence essentially takes that away. Um, so he's basically going to be locked up for the rest of his life. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's very rare to, to impose a whole life sentence. And there's some relatively strict criteria um, on the guidelines, from what I remember, that the judge would have to um, take into account. I think one of the criteria is killing a child. Um, but I think the way the judge dealt with this case is he he took into account the fact that it, it wasn't um, a case of someone going and intentionally killing a child. Um, but although it's no mitigation, um, it, it's not a case of him targeting, you know I mean, an innocent child. It was yeah. Yeah. Uh, very different from that. Or someone, for example, on the guidance, I think it's someone who kills more than one person. Or, so, so, I mean, it's, there's some very strict criteria. Um, and, yeah, I, I'd imagine there's probably been in a, a referral to the Attorney General to see what under the unduly lenient sentences scheme to see um, whether um, it goes to the Court of Appeal. Personally, I don't think it will, but I, I could be wrong. Um, we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for that, Craig, and thank you so much for joining us today. 
It's been an absolute pleasure. Can I ask you very lastly, just for some closing comments for aspiring solicitors or any other professionals or solicitors that are watching this podcast, please? If it's something you want to do um, and you're interested in criminal law or going into the law, um, it is a very rewarding career. Don't give up. Um, don't let people naysayers put you off because if you want it enough and you keep um, at it, most people um, eventually get there and they qualify and it can be a very fulfilling career. Thank you very much indeed, Craig. Thank you so much again for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. There we have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Craig McKenzie. Please do like this video and subscribe to our channel because we're going to be bringing on some exciting guests. Do head on to our website at www.law-simplified.co.uk to check out our resources and do follow us on all the social media platforms. We're literally everywhere. We're also going to start doing TikTok lives. So do please join me on that. Um, do remember, if you need a lawyer, please head on to our website, complete a contact form, and we'll get you to, in touch with a law firm in a jiffy. Whatever you do, please do stay in contact with the law. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am your podcast host, Farin Ali, and until I see you on the next one. <laughs>